Hi everyone, welcome to Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. I'm Langdon DeMint. And I'm Julian Taylor. And welcome to our podcast. Welcome to Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. Um, my name's Julian Taylor and I'm joined by my shiny-headed friend. How is everyone? Langdon DeMint. Okay. And we, we have a guest with us. I don't know whether you want to take your cap off, Stephen, just to show that you've got the... Yeah, we've got the three ballers. Three baldies. So he's got the right credentials to be a part of this podcast. <laughs> I, I got to say right quick, Stephen could replace you, Jules, because he's true bald like myself. And you're sometimes you let that little shag grow. Let it come out. <laughs> yep. Stephen, I've been trying to tell him to get just a straight, you know, straight shaver. If he didn't want to use a razor, Stephen, he won't do it. No, just get a, get a razor. I like the tufty the clown look with the little tufts coming out of sides. <laughs> Great. We've got a really interesting guest with us today, Stephen Kirby. It's great to have you with us. Um, you've got a really interesting story to tell. Um, I suppose to start off with, do you want to just tell us a bit about what you do now? What 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 are the things that you do on a day to day basis now? So what I do now is I'm a coach, so a life coach, if you like, um, using the the tools and techniques that I've got me through what I've gone through, which we're going to talk about uh, over the years. I now use that to help other people. And I also share my story with companies all over the world, really video calls or in person uh, and sharing the story of uh, an accident at work. Okay. Um, and it's, and it is, a tr well, I don't know what the right word is to say about your accident, whether it's, I was going to say interesting, but I think it, there's various other adjectives I could use to describe it. There's a, a lot of lessons to learn from each point of it, really, if you like. I have a, in my presentations, I give, I have the, obviously the beginning, the middle, the end, the beginnings of behavioral safety, the middle is the mental health, and the end is the importance of reporting. And I think it's really interesting, isn't it, Steve? Because I think you would even admit yourself if somebody had said to you, 10 years ago that you're going to end up being a life coach you'd have probably laughed at them wouldn't you i'd have been a what a what what's one of them um but yeah no this this is never the path i'd have ever chosen um but again certain times something happens in life and it sends us off down a different path and if the accident had never happened i wouldn't be who i am and, and helping the people that i'm helping today so i believe everything happens for a reason the good and the bad, and there's a lesson to be taken. Yeah, and even the bad. I think your story is, is it, for me, is really positive. Is is even the bad? There can be good things come out of those situations, can't there? Yeah, hundred percent. It's because of the bad, like I said, as to who I am, who I am, and what I'm doing today. But I had to go through that chapter in my life, and like to me, the, your life is a story, and we'll go through chapters, and sometimes we can have a really bad chapter and for a lot of people like especially within construction industry there's like male suicide is two a day um to kind of calculate that and and that's their, the end of their story because they haven't known how to start the next chapter they felt stuck in that that moment and that's where i was at i was that was the end of my book but luckily i reached out and got help and so therapist and now I'm on a completely different chapter of that story. And it's, yeah, it, it's life. And I think, you know, before, I know we're doing a lot of kind of predecessing here, but I think one thing that we've, we've seen, especially the last few years, right? How total worker health. So thinking about the mental health, the wellness, the well being, the, you know, even, dang, honestly, even health and safety, a lot of times we kind of keep parallel and don't really mix it together the way it should. But especially now since, you know, since COVID and post, I think organizations and honestly workers itself, right? And, you know, in the States, it was always that concept of what I do at home is my business. It's not your, and I think if we can get over that and yours is, a, I feel like a perfect story because if we can get over that, and just start realizing, hey, we're here to help each other. We're all trying to reach an ultimate goal. And whether it's in a process or whatever, there is a there's a lot of stress that just exists in general. And 
trying to ensure that you can do the job as safe as you need to without being pushed. And again, we'll get into it in a moment. I think to me, that's something really powerful because it's, we're trying to figure out ways to do things differently and better. And I think we still, a lot of times are missing the mark, even, you know, 2024. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, just here in the UK, across all sectors, 105 workers were killed, 2022, 2023. Nobody should be getting killed any art way, but especially that kind of number. In 2024, like you've said, with, with the PPE, PPE is like obviously your last line of defense, but you've got your PPE and then all the safety procedures that companies are putting out in place, all your permits to work, your excavation, you're working at height. We, we, we're at a standard where we shouldn't be losing anyone, yet we do. And a lot of it comes down to human behavior. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I think right before we start, I just want to add, like our fatalities in the States, they went up again. Um, like, well, most recent data is 2022, but it, you know, and that's another, I totally agree. We, you know, don't get me wrong, fluke things are going to happen, catastrophic incidents can happen, but if you can at least prevent them to acceptable levels and and as we'll hear in a second, you know, yours, it was a fatality that got, fortunately, your, you know, your strength or good Lord watching out for, you know. Um, somebody, somebody was definitely looking out for me that day, 100%. I think it's, it's interesting. We've, we've been talking about it for a while now, but I think it's interesting because whilst the decline in incident in incidents has been a, a positive, there's still this underlying issue with serious in, it, injuries and fatalities that's that's not going away is it so it tells us we've still got a job to do um i think we should stop beating around the bush though steve and maybe <laughs> get you get you to tell us your story um maybe go back to sort of sort of telling us sort of what, what you started out doing in life and then moving into sort of what happened to you when you had your incident yeah so We'll go back to, I started working in demolition when I was 20. I'm 45 now, I'm getting, I'm fairly old. But I started in demolition as a, a site operative or a site laborer. But that company I worked for also had a civils department. So it's like demolition and civils. And I worked with them for eight, eight years until I was 28. Whilst working with them, I, I obtained all my plant cards. So I had my crusher, my load and shovel, my moxie dump truck my telehandler, and then eventually my 360. And for most of my career, 20 years in construction and demolition, I was a 360 operator, an excavator operator. After working away, uh, I worked away until I was about 28, all over the UK, and being away from home five days a week. And then I got my, my ex-partner pregnant when I was just well, 27, just nearly 28. And I didn't want to work away no more with having having kids. Um, so basically, I, I found work back here and back at in Hull, where I'm from. And I worked on that site for I'd, I'd worked on it most of my career with demolition as well. If I wasn't working away, we came back to this particular site, and then I'd been working on there for a few years. And then if we jump forward to me being 32. So I've got, at this point, I've got 12 years experience within civil construction demolition. Yep. It was January the 11th, 2011. We just got back after the Christmas break. I was working as a 360 operator. Um, there was five of us in the gang. And before, before the Christmas break, as a machine operator, I dug out a 60 meter trench and we'd installed 60 meters of 600 mil thermal insulated pipe for a new fire hydrant system, a high pressure underground fire hydrant system. So we installed it before Christmas. We had the Christmas break. We went back after Christmas. And we was told when we got into work, it, like that morning, I got up with my kids, something I never used to be able to do because I've worked away all most of my life. But I got up with, with my kids. And Harry was four, Joe was eight. And I give him a kiss, give him a hug, help get him ready for nursery. And after, it was a normal day, as we say, like everything was going good. And then I set off to work after I'd given him a kiss and I said, I'll see you tonight. And then we'll get, I get to work. It's absolutely fixed snow. It's one of the worst winters 
I can think back to in 2011 in the UK or the northeast of the UK. And I get to work and I was expecting to dig the next section of this trench out. So we've done a section and then we're going to dig the next section. But we were told that section needed hydrostatic pressure testing. Now I'd never seen or done a hydro test. I didn't, I didn't I, I knew it had to do with water and it was pressure, but I'd, I'd never seen one done. I think a couple of the guys in the gang knew what it was, but they'd never done it either. Now the, the client or the company tried to bring in a specialist team to do this test. And this section of pipe had to be pressure tested up to 38 bar of pressure to be passed off to carry on. They couldn't get a specialist team in because it was so soon after Christmas. So what they did do was bring a guy in from the agency who had a streetworks card and that streetworks card gave him the competency to be able to do this hydrostatic pressure test. But reading through the method statement and the risk assessment, it was such a simple task. We had to just fill the, fill the line with water, fill it with water until there's water coming out the valve. Once there's water coming out, close it off, put the compressor on and then pressurize it up to 28 bar of pressure. It was really, it sounded so simple, so easy. Me being a typical digger driver and it's snowing and it's cold and it's icy, I had nothing to do at this point. So I got in my machine, turn the, the heaters on, turn the engine on, turn the heaters on and that was it. I sat nice and warm for a few hours. But while I'm sat warm watching these guys doing the test, after about an hour of testing, an hour of pressurizing, sorry, it got to about three bar and started leaking at the test plate at the flange. So this, the competent guy said, right, stop what you're doing, stop the compressor, get in there and tighten up that nut and bolt. So the, we're two young lads with us, Anthony and Jordan, they're both 18, so was eager to crack on and do something else. So they gets into the trench, you've got one sat on the spigot end of the pipe, one stood in front of the flange to get the leverage to tighten up the nut and bolt. So they're tightening it up. So then get out, turn the compressor back on, start pressurizing. Another hour or so passes, it gets to about five bar, starts leaking again. Same scenario, they jump in, tighten it up. Lunchtime, it gets to about 10 bar and it starts leaking again. So we've been doing this from like half eight, nine o'clock in the morning, by the time we've done an on-site risk assessment and whatnot. So we've been testing from half eight, nine o'clock-ish. It's now half past 12 and it's leaking in a different place on the flange at 10 bar. At that point, I felt something wasn't right. So I stopped, stopped my machine. I offered the door. I said, guys, somebody go back to the office and have a word with the boss because something doesn't feel right. It shouldn't, it shouldn't take this long, surely. So one of the lads gets in the white van, goes back to the office, saw the manager, explained it's leaked a few times, what do we do? And he literally looked on St. Gavain's website who manufactured this pipework and it stated it can be tested up to 38 bar if put together correctly. And that was it. He said, no, no, it's fine, just go and carry on. He didn't come out of the office or anything, he just said, carry on. So the guy came, come back, he said, keep going. Then what happened was, they did it, they stopped the compressor, they tightened it up, they started pressurizing again. It then got to just after three o'clock, two minutes past three, and I heard one of the lads say, it's leaking again. There's a few swear words in there, but it's, it's, it's leaking again. So they stopped the compressor, and I, I'm looking at the time, and we normally finish work at four o'clock. It's, it's this time of year, well, tomorrow is 13 years. So it, it's, it's getting dark, it's, it's just gone three o'clock. I don't want to work late, we normally finish at four. All I want to do, I've been sat in this machine all day, all I want to do is go on, see my kids, have my tea, and, and we still had another 10, it's 18 bar and it's leaking, we still had another 10 bar to go. So I'm thinking this is going to take another few hours. So I knew I was physically stronger than these two lads, Jordan and Anthony. I was 32, I'd been bodybuilding since I was 16. These two was 18. And I wasn't being gung-ho or anything. I just thought in my head, if I get in that trench and I tighten up all 24 nuts and bolts myself, it'll be nice and tight, it'll get up to pressure, and we can go. So with that, I jumped out of my machine. I said to Jordan, give us your harness. Jordan started laughing, although I'd start laughing. He used to call me fatty. A couple of stone every day I am now. I thought I was a unit, but I, I was a bit chunky. Um, but this, I 
said, give us your harness, I'm going to go in the trench. All the lads are like saying, go on, fatty, you do it. Jordan's changing out of his wellers and then into his boots. I said, look, don't worry. I mean, he was about to put his wellies on. I said, don't worry, I'll get in, I'm going to do it. I had two spanners in my hands as, as I approached the ladder to the trench. Thankfully, I passed them spanners back to one of the guys while I went down the ladder. Now, the trench was only about chest height. It wasn't a really deep trench. 600 mil pipe in front of me and the pipe, the trench is only about 1200 wide. So the pipes, the trench is that much, much more. I reached up for the spanners to my left hand side. And as I reached up, the end was blown, but I didn't know, I didn't know what happened. I didn't, I don't remember hearing a bang or anything. I was looking back. I was just knocked unconscious instantly. But what happened is as I've reached, the, the spigot ends blown off at 18 bar with a lot of air trapped in the pipe. So it would literally, as it had all been put together and the test was set up, it wasn't noticed that there was air in, like the pipe wasn't level, there was air in there. And, and yeah, it's, it's blown. If it had hit me, the spigot end that blew off weighed 460 kilograms. Wow. Yeah. So it's a big, big chunk of steel. Now that's blown off. And my digger arm is like a meter away, a couple of meters. And the impact from that in my digger arm moved my eight ton machine digger arm to the end of the trench, just with a fall. On just behind me, there's a live waterman running at eight bar of pressure, a high pressure waterman. If that had a fractured, nobody would have got in there to get me out. Somehow it, it went underneath it and missed it. And like, if it had hit me, it would have cut me in half. But I think as it's blown, because of the amount of air in there, it's blown, as I've reached for the spanners, it's blown me in the air like a rag doll. Because my boots, my boots was found 20 feet away over a different part of the site. So my boots just blew clean off. So I think it's thrown me in the air and then I've gone back in and then I've hit my head and then got the injuries that I ended up with. Um, but yeah, the pipe blew. All, all the, Guys, that, um, all the guys, obviously, is a massive bang. They've all turned and ran, because you would. If something blows, you're going to turn away. But what I'd ended up going in the air, as is what I'm, I'm guessing, but then I came to underwater. So I'm, I'm underwater. I don't know where I am. I thought I was in the Humber, like the river. Just And I, I didn't even know I was at work. I just knew... I was, I was underwater and it must be a river because it was dirty water. It was bubbles and mud and, and I'm trapped and I'm trapped and I'm trying to get up, but I don't know which way's up. It's like being in a washing machine. And I was only trapped under there for, for about a minute, for 45 seconds to a minute. But that minute was like the long, that was like when they say your life flashes before you. All I could think about was Harry and Joe and Katie. I was screaming for my mum. I was shouting for my dad. I was, I'm not a religious person. Uh, I'm spiritual, but not so much religious, but I was praying. I was praying to God, please, please, please. I'm 32, I can't leave my kids. Please, please don't let me die. But in my mind, I truly believed this is it. I'm gonna, because I couldn't get out. I felt, even though it was like around about a minute, I. I felt like I was just stuck in time. It was like forever. Um, but then all of a sudden, I felt myself rise up. And I, I thought I was fighting to get out. But Jordan, one of the young lads who was in there before me, he saw me just laid face down still. He thought I was dead in the water. And he, what, he jumped in the trench and he lifted me out. And as he lifted me out, all these people had heard the blast from sight. So everyone come running at at us to see what was going on and I'm stood there and everyone's just looking at me and shouting breathe Steve breathe and I couldn't breathe because I took on that much water and then with that Jordan somehow managed to pass me out the trench to the other guys and as they passed me out the water dislodged and I was able to get my breath and and yeah I thankfully I it didn't hit me and I, I didn't die but that was the scariest time of of my life just just out of interest steve did you know before you started the job you, you talked about there was a risk assessment and a method statement did, did anyone sort of seriously sit down and talk through what what 
the changes. And... No, not what, not what I remember. Um, it was all kind of quickly pushed, and there was nothing pointed out to us about not about having an exclusion zone. There was nothing discussed. Um, I, I, as to what I remember, it was a, gener a generic risk assessment that had been altered to cover the test. Was and I don't recall either from we had talked previously, was this an abnormal job for the most part, or was it at least, ha I mean, I, we need to have a specific in that, but was it fairly? It, it's something I'd, I'd never seen done before, so it wasn't a common job for us. And I think it was interesting, Stephen, you said, I know you've talked to lots of people now, don't you? And somebody had reached out to you and, and talked to you about what, what were the control measures that, that you were going to use and, and I think you 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 you've said you you had no idea what the control measures should be used in this situation. No, there was there was nothing. Summit didn't for me while it was still under pressure and they were stopping the compressor. There wasn't releasing the pressure. There's still pressure in there, and there was get there was getting in and out and tightening it up. And to me, that didn't feel right. But when you've got somebody who was apparently a competent person who's done it before and he's got his card to say so. And you've got the manager telling you, oh, what, it's all right, it can be tested up to 38 bar, whatever it was. It's, if someone in authority is saying, no, no, it's fine, keep doing what you're doing, even though it doesn't feel safe, you, you, you talk yourself out of it because you think, well, he said it's all right, so it's going to be all right. Well, that's that cultural shift we've got to change, isn't it? Which we talk yeah. about it all the time, is, is having businesses allowing people to put their hand up and go in and say stop yeah 100 percent. no if you feel something just stop if you don't feel safe if you don't feel confident if you, whatever it is if you're not 100 percent committed to doing that job then then stop and ask for ask for the training well and this is a perfect example and i, I guess i've forgotten that that this was one of those you really think of how can i start when safe meaning if, especially if this was a, a new job, you know, different than what you've done before. And uh, instead of trying to go through and ensure that, you know, X, Y, and Z are in place, we, we understand what the task requires. We understand how we can minimize what, what essential controls. We, and that it's when you start thinking about that, that you're like, you, they've just blanketed it and assuming, and this is a high hazard job. I didn't even know, sorry, I didn't even know what one bar of pressure was capable of. Yeah. So, so when they're telling me when it's when it's at eighteen bar and it's it's leaking again, and it, to me that eighteen bar didn't register as anything because I didn't know where it was. I, it was just eighteen bar. Now I know that that eighteen bar is the equivalent of fifty three and a bit ton pushing against that that flange. If I knew that amount of pressure was trying to push it off. I just said, well, surely we must have an exclusion zone. But even we were told it couldn't go. It didn't even need a thrust block. Like, because I know, again, it's not something I use, we ever did, but I know you put like concrete blocks in front of the plate in case it, it goes and stuff. And we asked about if it needs a thrust block and we were told, no, it can't go nowhere. By the design, there it is. But that's if everything is put together by a competent professional who knows exactly what they're doing. And with us and the guys who put it together, we didn't know that. So like before, it, it was all laid level before the Christmas break. Now, I'm not fully aware, but I'm pretty sure that you've, you're supposed to backfill them before you test them anyhow because of movement. In. But this wasn't, it had each, each four meter section had a, a bleed valve. And before, Chris, before the Christmas period, then bleed valves were being shut off. So that full part of the site flooded over the two weeks that we was off over Christmas. And because them valves had been closed off, the pipe like, was full of air, so it, it, it floated in places. That's something an engineer should have spotted before we did something at this level, you know, like doing a job like this. And it was passed off to test. It was like, no, no, it's fine, go ahead. When, we, when I stopped it and James went to see the manager to say what's happening, if he had come out, instead of sat on his laptop, he'd have come out and looked at it from his perspective. He'd, he'd, he'd probably spotted that and it wouldn't have gone ahead. 
if if any of us have had any training, we'd have spotted that. And but as I said, I didn't even know what a one bar of pressure was, let alone anything else to do with with a test. I think there's that real danger of complacency, isn't there? Because you don't know. And I mean, I think that. I love what you talk about, Stephen, because you you kind of really illustrate it. Fifty three tons, the fact that it's blown four hundred and fifty kilograms across, and it and it's moved the digger arm that weighed eight ton. That's a perfect illustration of what pressure does. And like you say, you shouldn't be going anywhere near it, 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 it particularly starting to leak. And I was the other lads was it could have gone at three bar now. What, the reason why I got into speaking and sharing this story is because Skanska, three months after this had happened, they had a fatality uh, on one of their sites. And theirs, I think that theirs was gas, but it's still pressure testing. And the pipe, pipe failed at three bar and he, he died instantly. And from what I've looked into, there was a few more fatalities that same year as well due to failed pressure tests. And it's it's like you've got to have the training. You know what I mean? It's you, you can't have someone doing this type of stuff and and not not well not having an idea of what they're doing. It's 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 dangerous. It's such a good case study, Stephen, because you you think about the training element that there were unqualified people there, the fact that there's something going wrong and and it's not people haven't reacted to it. Yeah, it's everything that you'd expect especially on the type of site that we was on you'd expect everything done professionally and in the right way and and I think towards us again we knew we, we was out of our depth doing what we was doing but you just told to carry on if you're not going to do it we'll get somebody else to come and do it and it's and then when when they said about we was doing it because they couldn't get a specialist team to do the test I always thought I was a, a competent person because I could drive any machine you put in front of me or I'd done certain tasks, certain jobs all over the country working away. I thought I was a very competent person, but I wasn't. I was a very confident person. I'd have a go at anything and I'm not stupid. So I can read from it and I can understand it and I can think, yeah, yeah, I can do this. Or I can have a go at that. That doesn't make me competent, but and this is what I know I'll tell everybody on my talks. You can be as confident as you want to have a go at something. You might have seen a free a guy operate a 360, a machine, and it might need moving. And you might think, yeah, I can do it. And you jump in it to try and do it. Stay out of it. Because if you hit somebody, or you fall on and get stuck in your tracks, or you spin around and hit, hit a vehicle or a car, you're not a competent person just because you, you know how to do it. And, and you can see it, and you've seen it a thousand times, you are not competent. So, and that's a, that's a big thing for me. It's the difference between competence and confidence. Yeah, it can be dangerous, can't it, that overconfidence? And I thought, I thought another really interesting thing that you just said as well was the, well, if you don't do it, we'll get somebody else to do it. And, and that starts to say a lot about the culture of a site, doesn't it? That, um, that if people are raising concerns and that kind of response is happening, there's a culture issue, isn't there? Yeah, and that and that does happen, and that was a case on that site, and it is a case on quite a few sites still. Like I know guys that are still working on site, working through agencies, especially because that's when it's difficult. Because if you want to do that task and it needs doing, then they'll get rid of you and get somebody else through the agency. And, and and it's tough. It's really, really tough because it does put a lot of pressure on people to take those risks. Well, it's, it's, it's your livelihood, isn't it? Again, part, part of my presentation is what I've learned as well through human behaviour. We will take risks to save a little bit of time or a little bit of money. It's we, we all do it. We do it in our everyday life. And if you've got a gang working on a site and you offer them X amount of money to get this task done by a certain time, they're going to have a go because it's it's money. You've, it's down to the company to be checking what what qualifications they've got, what who's who is competent to do the job, who's not. And if if you haven't got that competency card, then you shouldn't be doing it. 
Well, and, you know, employees, they're masters of the job. I mean, so for, assuming you, uh, you know the requirements, even when you, like even for that, even if you know some of the adversity and some of the potential uh, hazards and extreme risks, there's still certain areas that, right, we know where we can deviate and get closer because we know it, but it's a whole different ball game. I mean, still in line with that when you haven't been told or you don't understand the job to the extreme. And that's when you make the assumption that, you know what, that this should be okay. But you don't realize that that deviation is actually a lot smaller because of the initial failure. Exactly. And that's, that's kind of what I say, in the, again, in a lot of my talks, I, that it'll be all right. If, if, if you, you have a look and you question yourself, you think, oh, it'll be all right, I'll do it. And you know you shouldn't, maybe. But if you do that little mini risk assessment in your head and you think, yeah, it'll be all right. Like somebody getting on site and not having the right PPE. It might be a five minute job. So they think, ah, it'll be all right. I don't need it. It won't be all right. It can massively go wrong. And you might get away with it a few times and complacency then kicks in and you, and then you think you're, you're unstoppable. You, you never need gloves because you've never cut yourself. You'd never need a mask if you can hold your breath rather than breathing in the dust. But at some point it will catch you. You're riding on luck. And, and that's all we do is we ride on luck when we, we risk these things. And that, as soon as we get that voice, ah, it'll be all right, it'll be okay, whatever we're thinking, that's when we need to stop and just give ourselves five seconds and think, what is worst case scenario? And be prepared. It's like you, you, your story is a great example, isn't it? Where actually, what's the long term effects here? Actually, for the sake of of, of, a, of a few minutes, what's the long term effects? And it's just not worth it, is it? No. So going back, the only reason I got out of that machine was because it was nearly on time. It was time. Save a bit of time. I didn't want to work overtime. If it was an hour earlier, Anthony and Jordan would have been back in the trench. If I wasn't bothered about doing overtime, then I, again, I'd sit back and I'd have just waited. But I wanted to go home. I wanted to get that job finished. And I believed I had the strength to do to tighten up all them nuts and bolts. So I was on the permit to work. It, it wasn't my job, but we was all on the same permit. So it ain't like I was in the wrong place and I shouldn't have done it. It was just, it was just something I felt I needed to do to, to save that bit of time. And and now, 13 years later, I am in a good place mentally and physically. I do still struggle with, with like, I, I can't work out like I used to. I can still work out, but I've got to go really light. I've, I've had my bicep snapped. I, I had, after the accident, I had to have cortisol injections in both elbows just to be able to move my arms. Where my feet was, must have been blown in the blast where my boots blew off. I've done all my, my ligaments in my feet, my tendons, and I'm I'm all right walking maybe about about 500 meters and then my feet start and and it's it's something I've just learned to live with. But it's all physically it's to do with the accident. Mentally, I'm 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 over that in a way. Well, I was going to say, Steve. What so? What happened? Sort of post it, it immediately post it happening. What what was the sequence of events? What once you once they got you out of the trench? I eventually get to hospital and get my head stitched up. Yeah, they clean me up and they get all the pipe. I've got pipe bedding stuck in my face and my neck and like shrapnel where it's blown. Now I thought that I'd just get picked out real nice, but the door they tend to get a stiff brush and and scrub it out so that was not very nice um and then i got kind of i got i had a lot of scans i got stitched up i got cleaned up the kids are worried the kids are crying then i've been in an accident the hospital's trying to find me a bed because i've been i've drowned and i've been unconscious they said i needed like they need to observe me and i just wanted to get home to my kids so i was like no i have to stay in i said I, I need to go home and eventually I, I discharged myself and, and went home, got home fairly about midnight, I think it was, after the accident had happened at three. And and that's yeah, that was that was how that side of it was dealt with. Now 
looking back now, I know uh, like five years ago when I set up SK Life Coach UK, I set up SK Life Coach UK with the ambition of helping guys within construction who don't want to go to therapy, but they might speak to somebody who's relatable, somebody who on the, knows what they're going through, somebody who's worked on the same field they're on. So I had this idea and I set it up, but then I put a post on LinkedIn just saying who I was and what had happened. And then a guy from Skanska, Craig, saw it from Skanska and said, am I right in seeing that you got blew up? He gets in touch. They then invite me to go and talk um, at their head office in Rickmansworth and share the story. Now, I never had any plans to do that at this point. This is like, this is five years ago. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I can do it. But I had no pictures, I had no information, I had nothing to use other than my medical report. I had nothing to really show anything about this accident. So I, I wrote to the client, sent an email to the client. Cause I knew they'd done an investigation. They, they told me, about, I was off work for seven months but I knew an investigation had gone on on where could return. So I spoke to the client and sent an email and said, look, Skanska's asked me to share my story. Can I have some information, please? Um, I'm not going to mention the client. I'm not going to mention the principal contractor. No names or anything. It's just the story and the lessons to be learned from it. And his words were, I'm sorry, Steve, but we're not going to want you to do it. And I said, well, why not? And he That's said, red flag. Yeah, he said, um, he said, leave it with me. I'll, I'll speak to my management and I'll get back to you. Now, he was the manager on that site. He was the top man on that site. So I said, yeah, all right. And anyhow, a couple of weeks pass and I've not heard from him. I've sent him emails, not heard nothing. And I've got this talk coming up with, with Scanster at their head office. And not sorry, at their head office. It was a, a stand down at Leicester. So I've got the safety stand down to do at Leicester, but I've got nothing to put, put together yet. So someone said to me, write to the HSE for the Freedom of Information and the HSE will give you the full investigative report. They'll give you everything. So I thought, right, that's a good idea. So I wrote to the HSE. I explained my name, who I was, the site, everything. And a couple of days later, I got an email saying, really, really sorry, Steve, but we've got no idea who you are or what's happened. So at that point, I then sent an email. I'd been trying to get in touch with this manager for, for weeks. And I sent him an email saying, how come the HSE don't know anything about the accident? He rang me up within five minutes and he said, what do you mean the HSE? Like, he had his little panic on straight away. So I said, well, because you didn't give me any information, I, I, I wrote from the Freedom of Information to the HSE, but they don't know anything. He said, right, do you want to come on site tomorrow and we'll explain how and why I reported it? So I was like, yeah. So I got invited onto site. After the accident had happened, I was off work for seven months, but I went back to work on there for around about four years in the end. So I had a good relationship with everyone. Everyone knew me. I'd done my triple SPS, come a site supervisor. Um, so I knew, I knew everybody and I, that's why I thought I'd get this information easy because we, we was on good terms. But then he invited me in and he said, um, What's the HSE said? So I said, at the minute, they just said they ain't got nothing. That's it. They haven't said anything else. And then we had a bit of a discussion. And then there was a, a bit of paper on the table. I was expecting to see a laptop or a folder, something as in a report. And all there was was an A4 bit of paper. And I said, what's this? And basically they said, it said dangerous occurrence on the top. So I said, dangerous occurrence? They said, yeah, we didn't report it as a, a riddle reportable accident incident it was reported as a dangerous occurrence and i said it's a yeah i said i said i said if we were stood if i was still in my machine and that end blew off and hit my digger arm and i'm like whoa that's a dangerous occurrence it's caused no no harm but it potentially could have i said i was in that trench i said i, I suffered physical injuries where i needed physio for three, four months. I ended up admitted to a mental health hospital and I was getting therapy for four months. How is, I, I needed stitches in the back of my head. How is it not like that? How is that only like minor injuries, which is what it was described as. And it, neither of them could look at me in the face. But looking back now, that was the reason that they didn't get me an ambulance. 
He used the on-site ambulance. To t the on-site ambulance can't leave the site. It can go around the site, but that's it. So the on-site, um, if they'd have rang me an ambulance, that um, the ambulance has then got a duty to inform the police, who will then got a duty to inform the HSE because it was a workplace incident. By not getting me an ambulance and getting a colleague to take me to get my head stitched up, they bypassed all that. But then what happened was, on well, on the way to the hospital as well, like went to minor injuries on the way to the hospital, James's phone had rang. The, it was the manager saying, or the shift site manager saying, what's happening? And James turned around to him and said, we've been to minor injuries, they can't help him, he's got to go to a &E. His words were, for fuck's sake, make sure you're on site tomorrow. And that was it. So I'm at hospital and part of it in my mind is, I've got to be at work tomorrow. And the doctor's saying, oh, you've done this damage, you've done that, you've done that. But if I, I lived week to week, like most of us did, if I lost that job, I've got nothing. Do you know what I mean? I've got to find somewhere else. And I, I don't remember exactly what I was thinking, but I know my mindset and I would have been, I would have been thinking, oh, just stick me up, I'll be all right. I need to get back to work. I wouldn't have been like laid back thinking, no, I, did, I, I wanted to get out of there and I wanted to get home and see my kids and I wanted to get, sort, like, get back to work. Now at eight o'clock the next morning, I woke up and I couldn't move. Like the bruising had come out, I, I was battered. I'm sat like this and there's a knock at the door and it was one of the colleagues come to pick me up and said, I have to go on site to give a statement. So I didn't really, I told him I was in pain, told him I couldn't, told him that I haven't slept all night because I was been having flashbacks. And he said, look, you'll be all right. You, you don't have to, we're just gonna get, take a statement. You won't have to get in the machine or all like that. And he literally got me into the minibus, like shuffled me along, carried me into it, took me to site, swiped me in. And then when I got to site, I remember the director coming over and saying that I look like shit. And I remember thinking, thanks. And he said, right, I need a statement from you, but I need, so I said, well, can I go now then and go on? Because I, I need to go on. He said, no, I need to speak to the other five guys first, then I'll speak to you, which will be about half past one. So I was expected to just sit in an office in a chair all day, even though I was physically battered. And one of the supervisors went by and saw me and he was like, what are you doing here? I said, they've told me I've got to come in and give a statement. He said, yeah, I bet, I bet they have. Get in my car, I'm taking you home. And then he dropped me back off again. And basically, basically they got me on site so they didn't have a lost time incident on the hands. If I hadn't have gone in that morning, then it was a lost time incident. But because I'd gone in that morning, and, it, and again, Steve, it's, I think it's interesting when we've talked about this because you said senior people were, were bonused, weren't they, based on... What I was told, yeah, what I was told was this was... Like, obviously, I'm, I've got all this information five years ago and I'm setting up SK Life Coach UK. Um, but at probably about probably about six, six, six years ago, I was working as a for one of my friends helping out of his tree surgery company and we was doing a job out in the country somewhere and I got talking to this old guy and didn't know him just got talking to him doing a tree job for him and then we got on about I was on about because I think I was walking a bit funny and he asked me if I was all right so my feet are aching and I explained why and I, I got into the accident and he was like oh where did this happen and then I told him and his face was shocked. He said, when was this? I said, 2011. He said, it cut off. So I said, what do you mean? He said, I was the, it was like the area, area manager of this section of the UK. I don't know what his role was exactly, but he was a top, top managing or managing director. And he said, I should know about that. He said, so, and then I told him that it was never reported to the HSE. It was covered up. And he said, yeah, well, the, by the sounds of it, it was just kept on site, down that site. It was well covered up. He said, because I don't know nothing about it, and I should. He said, now, all I can say is the only reason that I'd be covered up as a client is because there'd have been about five guys at the very top who, if they'd have had a lost time incident, wouldn't have got their, their end-of-year bonus. He said, it all comes down to bonus. And that was from a guy who was above them tonight. was that was that pretty 
I guess, had y'all had, to your knowledge, had there been many incidents or was it strictly that was more the mindset of let's keep it hush hush or was it we don't we're not used to this? You know, I mean, both. I'm I know I knew for definite there'd been in there'd been incidents on that site where they had someone had got injured and they got them back in the next day and put them on light duty. But for me back then, I thought they was being nice and being kind by putting them on light duty, knowing that they've hurt themselves. I was young and naive. I didn't look at it in a way of the reason they've got them back on site and on light duty so they don't have to report it as a widow report of accident. But I never saw it like that. But I, even now, a couple of years ago, not 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 this November, just gone the one before. My uncle works on that same site, and he got run over by uh, another rough terrain forklift. What the scaffold is used to move box, so we've got big wheels at the front, little wheels at the back. He he's stood near his works van, and one of them comes up with sun is in his eyes, and he can't see where he's going, and he runs my uncle over. And my uncle takes a whack in the back of the leg, so he has to go get him checked out. So they get the on-site ambulance from the same place, same client, different principal contractor. Gets him on, ambulance comes out, gets him in it, checks him out, takes him in flashing lights to the car park, puts him in a colleague's car, sends him to the man of injuries, gets his legs x-rayed, gets him picked up the next morning and put him on light duties for two weeks. Sat back in the office. And I said to him, why aren't, I said, you know what I'm doing and what I'm saying and these companies that I'm working with, why have you not reported them? And they said, because um, it's like, it's nearly 60. He's struggled to find another job. He got put on light duty. So it was, it was good because he didn't have to do much. And it's like, yeah, but it's, they're getting away with it. And retirement. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, that's a joke, but at the same time, unfortunately, now, I mean, that's, that it's, it's unfortunate that a company like that is able to continue willingly making those decisions. It's the, the contractor that was on there when I was having my incident, they lost the contract. And again, they're not going to say outright it was because of that, but I know 100% it was because of that because I've spoke to people who worked within the management and whatnot. And they lost a multi-million pound contract because of that incident. But it's a different contract to one there now. And they're a top, top contract there. And it's the exact same thing still happened to him. And it's, it's, it's that culture. I was going to say the scariest thing from it as well, Steve, is, is when you, you, you talked about the Skanskar incident three months later. There's no opportunity to learn from your incidents to actually prevent the Skanskar incident happening. No. And that's that's a massive part of why I'm, I just do what I do and why I'm sharing my story. Except there is the accident. There's a lot we can learn from the accident and, and training and communication. There's the mental health, like my own troubles afterwards. But then it's the reporting, because if we don't report something, we don't learn from it. So even if it's a small name, miss, if, if it's something tiny, if we just keep ignoring it, eventually it's going to catch somebody out or something bad's going to go wrong. Now, in this case, if the HSE had have come in and done a thorough investigation, and then they would have then, whatever their findings were, they'd have put that out UK-wide in a briefing or of some, some form. And by doing that, and they might have put the, the procedures out as in, you must have an, ex, an exclusion zone. You know, like, and it's gone out there and people learn from it. And then that guy might not still be today. He might have read that. He might have, it, the company might have said, oh, this happened on this site. Let's make sure we don't make the same mistake. But if it's not reported, nobody knows it's covered up. And we don't learn from it. And, uh, and that's why I'm passionate about getting that out there and getting it across. Same as there is still companies out there that do offer cash bonuses for a good safety record when it comes to KPIs. You cannot, you cannot reward safety with cash bonuses. It's completely ridiculous. It's, it encourages people not to report. And that's the whole the whole issue with incentivization as as a whole is what what do you do what do you not do how do you make it more engaging and that i 
I, I'm one of those I completely agree, honestly. It's now safety should be rewarded, but not if something goes wrong and you report everything the correct way and you show how you how you put it right, what went wrong, and you can prove that it, you've learned from it, then surely that looks better on your record rather than a fake zero incident. I've got 23 million man hours about a lost time incident. It's it, it's not real. Well, it's not. And every time you see it, I mean, I don't know what you think, but it just goes through my head. It just means, yeah, re- people ain't reporting stuff, are they? So, um, yeah. Um, I, I think I, I was going to, I'm laughing here to Steve because you've had to turn around and turn the lights on there. Cause I know, it's getting dark. It's getting dark. <laughs> every, every time me and you get talking, we talk for a long time, don't we? So, yeah. Um, but it's a it's a it's a fascinating story. The the, the main story is that if, if something doesn't feel right, we stop and we ask and we communicate. And that that's practical, like on site. It's also in your mind. If something doesn't feel right, stop and communicate and talk to somebody. Because if if we don't, the the mind is very delicate and it it can it can turn on us at any point. It's a great message. Langdon, do you want to wrap us up? Yeah, sure. Um, Stephen, again, we appreciate your, um, your openness and willingness to discuss. I know that it's unfortunate that crap, and I use that uh, word versus an incident in this case, like this still happens. Um, but uh, hopefully that's how we try to learn and grow from it and uh, teach others and in regards of that so we definitely appreciate your time but listeners for everyone out there we appreciate you joining and just as steven told us one of the most important things we can do is stay healthy and safe and watch each other's back out there thanks everyone everyone really appreciate you tuning into this episode of two bald guys talking safety please follow and subscribe to wherever you stream your favorite podcast or visit us at evotix.com And if you want to see how follically challenged we really are, come and check us out on YouTube. If you've got value from the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts. And in the review section of this podcast, if you could leave us a review or a rating, that would be great. And as always, everyone, while you're going about your days, about your normal lives, stay safe out there and watch each other's back.